Let's try that again. Good morning, church. You can all hear me now. Most of you heard me prior. I kind of have a loud mouth, I've been told, so I think I probably don't even need this, but it is good uh, to be with you. I'm going to begin this morning by reading a letter that was written to you. Well, kind of. Um, I opened this letter yesterday, and it was written to the congregation. It was written to the congregation in the year 1989. I opened this letter yesterday. In 1989, this building was five years old. And you can imagine, although maybe not many of us here could imagine celebrating this building, <laughs> uh, they were celebrating this building. Uh, they, the Lord had used the people to raise the funds and build this building. And so five years of having this building, they thought, let's send a, con a letter to the congregation uh, 20 years from now that will be opened in the year 2009. So we're a little late. <laughs> we're 12 years late, if you're a mathematician, in opening this letter. We didn't know this letter was here. We didn't know this time capsule was in the building outside there on the left until some of our young people and some of the young people that are here during the week at Grace Classical Academy found this time capsule. And so I'm going to read this letter that was written to you. You guys good with that? All right. So here's, here's uh, it's December 6, 1989. Dear posterity, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. That's from James 4, 13 through 15. Now we get to the pastor's letter. If the Lord wills, some of us alive today will be here to share in the 25th anniversary of this building. Our community is experiencing very rapid growth in and around Auburn. More than 50,000 residences in the greater Auburn area crowd our streets and force our property values skyward. Large numbers move here from the Bay Area and Southern California. Our nation is experiencing moral and spiritual decline. Scandals hit the famous religious leaders and not-so-famous ministries and churches. Family deterioration with divorce and rebellious youth is a major problem. Hedonism and selfish me generation is in full force. Commitment to the Lordship of Christ is an increasingly difficult lifestyle among believers. Problems of carnality continue to increase. There is a great wave of nominalism in the United States today. Memorabilia in this capsule includes articles from the Auburn Journal from 1984 to 1989, church construction snapshots, and the 1985 pictorial directory, which we've already heard Joe Meredith is in there, so you're going to want to check that out to see, uh, see Joe. Joey Meredith is in there. 1985 pictorial directory. Our five-year anniversary included receiving comments from members and friends regarding blessings of the past five years. As I write to you, I am the second pastor of this congregation. 
I followed Reverend Richard Delinsky in 1979. This year marks my 10th year of service. Pam and I, along with our children, Shelly, 21, Mike, 18, and Brantley, 16, ironically, those are the exact ages of my children, 21, 18, and 16, might uh, have been greatly blessed to serve this congregation. God has done mighty things in individual lives. If the Lord tarries, we believe this congregation will grow and multiply into a great and mighty army for the Lord. The Lord richly bless you all. The Reverend Ronald M. Payne, signed with blue pen. And I met Ron and his wife just a year or two ago in this building as they just showed up. They live on the island of Kauai. I think that's where all pastors retire from Auburn. Um, He just showed up here with his wife. He didn't mention this, didn't mention the time capsule, because I think he thought it was opened in 2009 when we were instructed uh, to open it. But here we are uh, opening it today, and I just want to encourage you. We're going to get to the word here in just a moment in the sermon, but I want to encourage you. um, Many people in the congregation, even some of you here today, uh, filled out these blessing or thanksgiving cards. And the, the point was for the body today, or you know, back in 2009, to read these that were written back in 1989. So take a moment. I looked at them yesterday. That They're on the table in the foyer, and I, I made a copy of one of them uh, from Fred Moore. Uh, several of you have cards that are out there that are here today. Fred is still part of our church family but hasn't been attending, along with some others who are just making that decision right now. Uh, not, not to be here, and, and that's okay. That's, uh, we're, we're all responding to this, this uh, virus differently. And Anyway, let me read to you briefly what uh, Fred wrote. The question here was, in what ways has God used the believers in this church to help comfort or challenge you and your family in Christian living during these past five years, the first five years of this building? So Fred, Fred wrote this in 89. The, the friendliness and caring of the parishioners created a desire to attend services, and gave, gave me a, a desire to learn more about Jesus, strengthening my belief each passing day. Fred Moore, 96 years old today, still part of our church family. Mike, you talked with him this week, right? I'm, I'm trying to talk with him quite a bit and visiting him. He started coming here with enthusiasm because the people of this church were showing love to him. And then as he started to come, fell more in love with Christ. And what a beautiful man who loves Christ so deeply today. So take a look at these um, after the service. Uh, you can take a look at this letter as, as well. It's been a blessing uh, to, to, to look at these cards and to, to get this note, even though we're, we're 12 years late, we're, we're right on time uh, looking at it. Well, today, as we shift gears to this sermon, uh, my aim and my desire is for my heart and for your hearts to be on fire for God. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with that expression or not, but someone who's on fire for God is someone who is who's just very close to the Lord. And it comes out in the way that they live life and that the way that they speak. And the only way, it's already been alluded to in this service, the only way for us to be on fire for God, which the Apostle Paul was, uh, 
is for the Spirit to be at work in us. So, so I, I can't say things or give you four steps and then you leave here and you're, you're on fire. So my sermon today is really, it boils down to two points, which are just prayers. To give you the short answer of it is, is praying for God to, to make our hearts on fire, to make us passionate and to know and love Christ and thereby loving the things that he loves. That's my aim in this short passage and sermon that we're going to look at today. Before we get to today's unit, which begins in chapter 9 and verse 30, I want to go back and look on the screen at Paul's heart that is on fire in Romans 9, 2, and 3. This is what Paul says in in verses 2 and 3. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. We've already looked at this verse, but let me just refresh you what's going on here. As Paul is seeing that very few of his brothers of of the flesh, very few Israelites are professing faith in the Messiah who came. Who, who, rose the de- who, who rose Lazarus to life, who fed the 5,000, who demonstrated unequivocally to everyone that saw him that he had supernatural power and he was like no one they had ever seen before. Nonetheless, Israel overwhelmingly rejected them. The Israelites did. There's a remnant who believed. Paul's among that remnant. But Paul is so on fire for God and so close to the heart of God that he is saying here, if it were possible for me to be separated from Christ so that these people that I love would would come to know him and be close to him, I would do that. That's someone who is on fire for God or whatever language you want to use to describe it. That's what I am after in this sermon and for my heart and for your heart today. So what is, cent- what is central for Paul's life and to get him to the place where he is like this is that he is very, very close to Christ and he is very, very close to the work of Christ or the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection. And he understands that that work of Christ, that gospel, is something to be, to be shared, something to be spread, something to be witnessed to. And that remains our mission, to be witnesses to the gospel, to the good news of God's love in Christ, the work that he did in, in Christ on the cross in his resurrection. So Paul is very close to these two things, and he understands that the work of Christ is something to be spread, something to be shared. Some of us, when we are not deeply in love with God, when we are not on fire for him, we just kind of can, and and, and I am like this, we can just kind of sit at home and, and, and be thankful and content and lazy spiritually, content that we know him, and, and we forget about the mission that he's given us to be a witness, to be someone who demonstrates God's love in, in the everyday stuff in, which, in the places that we live, the people that we interact with, our coworkers, our family members, our neighbors, 
our, our, our fellow classmates, wherever, whoever it is you interact with, it is God's will for you to be a spreader of the gospel and of God's love to them. And we so easily forget that because we are not often like Paul, so close to Christ and so close to the work of Christ that we're on fire for Christ. We're, we're kind of like something, someone outrageous who might go and buy a, a, a brand new convertible Corvette. I, I, I went on the website last night. You know, I, I didn't hit the order button, but, but I, I went on and just like, like all the bells and whistles, MSRP. 94585 for a convertible Stingray 3LT. Now, imagine buying that car, and you just sit it in the garage. And, you know, just like every few days, you go out and look at it and just go, man, what an awesome car. And then you just go back in your house, and you just have that awesome car just sitting in your garage. That car is meant to drive, to drive fast, to drive in the canyon fast, to go to Montana where there's no speed limits and drive fast for the glory of God, right? That's what that car is for. You'd go 65 the whole way there and then just let it rip. That's what that car is for. It doesn't sit in the garage. Some of us treat the gospel like that. It just kind of sits in the garage. We just, we just, we know God loves us. And, and we forget, like Paul, who's on fire and who's close to God, that there are individuals or people that God wants us to witness to, to love, to show the way to live as imperfect followers of Christ as we are. So this is my heart out of today's passage as I've been reading over this passage, and, and, and saying, God, what would you want to say to us out of it? So let, let's turn to this unit now. Let's look, begin at the very beginning here, verse 30 of our unit for today, where Paul asks this question, what then shall we say? And, and, and that can be confusing as we just jump in here. What then shall we say? What, what is he saying here? A paraphrase of that. Therefore, in light of God's calling of the Gentiles, just finish this big section of God's absolute sovereignty in his calling and his election. In light of God's calling of the Gentiles and only of some Jews, what, 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 what's going on here? What, what's the status in the first century? Why, what, explain what, what, what's going on. So Paul's asking this question, what's going on in the ground? Why are we in this situation? And then he explains it. The situation of being of so many few of the chosen people, Israel, actually believing in the Messiah, and so many Gentiles believing in the Messiah. So many Israelites not believing in the Messiah. So, so then he describes what's going on on the ground. So let's take a look at, uh, at the next few verses, uh, 30, middle of 30 to 33. So he says that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. And he doesn't say it here, but the implication or what he's trying to say is it's by faith in the work of Christ, by faith in the gospel. Faith in what Christ did on the cross. Faith in the person of Christ. The Gentiles, by and large, are getting this. And they have faith in Christ. That is who is making up the church primarily. Gentiles in the first century. To Paul's heartache. Verse 31. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness. So we've got these Gentiles, they're not pursuing it. We have Israelites who are pursuing it. 
but they haven't attained it. They haven't come into relationship with Christ or the work of Christ, the gospel. Why not? Verse 32. Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here is irony and paradox or, or, or something like that, whatever you want to call it. And then Paul quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes from Isaiah the prophet about how Christ is going to be a stumbling stone. Look at the quotes. He quotes from Isaiah 28 and then Isaiah 8. He, he flips them in order again. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him that is, the one who trusts in Christ, that is, Paul and the remnant of Israelites and this great number of Gentiles expanding, will never be put to shame. But there is this stone that they are stumbling over. They are stumbling over the person and work of Christ. And that was actually prophesied in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, what does this have to do with us being on fire? What is happening in the remnant of Israelites? What is happening in the overwhelming numbers of Gentiles who are dominating the population, if you will, of the early church is that the person and the work of Christ is central to their hearts. It has become dominant. You see, for the Israelites and for many centuries, the people of God, what was dominant, what was central was the Torah, was the law. And they came to have a distorted view of the law, that if we keep the law, then we will be saved. That's not what the law taught. Salvation has always been by faith. Whether it was Abraham, whether it was under Moses, it has always been by faith. So they had this distorted view of the Torah. And they kept that going after the Torah that pointed to the Messiah who was going to come already came and changed everything. And changed an emphasis from Torah to the work of Christ, to the gospel. So, my response, our response, how do we respond to this text? I'm saying we want to have hearts like the Apostle Paul, but they, those kinds of hearts don't come easily to us. Even those of us who are adopted into God's family and love him and, and so on. It's very easy to have hearts, to have passion for other things, but not to be on fire for God. So, so we need to pray this prayer, and we need to pray it over and over. Like Jeffrey alluded to, it's a daily sort of thing because our passions get displaced. Our loves get spread out. So we have to have at the very core this, this place where he is central. The person and work of Christ is central in our hearts. That's how Paul had the heart that he have, had. And that's the only way that we're going to get that heart too. Is if we have that kind of love, affection, and devotion to Jesus and to his gospel, to the good news. So there's a couple implications in this passage I want to bring out briefly. One has to do with exclusivity and one has to do with unity. So exclusivity, just making an observation on this text. In this passage here, we have people who believe in God, Israelites, who know the Bible really well and are lost 
they're lost. Because they do not have faith in the Messiah who has come. Is it possible to believe in God, to know the scriptures really well, to be devoted to all kinds of good works, pro-life, caring for the poor, loving our neighbors, feeding the hungry, and to be far from the person and work of Christ? Say yes. (laughs) That's the situation. So there are implications here about the exclusivity of the gospel. People must profess and believe the gospel. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus is saying. Well, what about the chosen people who are celebrating Passover and are so ethical and have memorized more of the Hebrew Bible than I have? No, it is through Christ. So we have a gospel that is exclusive to all other means of getting into a right relationship with God. It's an exclusive gospel. The other thing I want to mention, an implication from this text, is an implication for unity. Unity. God has especially put this on my heart this week. And so first, where does it come from in the text? And let me talk about the heart in 2021 here. So in the text, who is unified? Is Paul mostly unified with the people of Israel, with his ethnic brothers, with the people who he's been celebrating all of the deliverances and festivals and feasts? Is that who he's mostly unified with? No. He's mostly unified with the Gentiles because It doesn't matter what race you are. It matters whether you have been touched by God's grace and believe the gospel. So the unity that Paul is experiencing is also connected not to fine points of doctrine, but to the person of Christ and to the work of Christ. Having faith in the gospel. This is what the unity was like in the first century in the church And the disunity was Paul seeing so many Israelites outside the church. So what does this have to do with us? Oh my goodness. Do we have a disunified country? Say yes. And regrettably, and and it should not be, we have a disunified church. In our country, and to a degree at Cornerstone, and to a degree at the other churches I won't mention by name as I've talked with the pastors over there. Why do we have disunity? One of the reasons that we have disunity, I want to suggest the main reason that we have this. Before I say what the main reason is that we don't have unity, let me say the reason. For many, that we have disunity is, is because of differing responses to COVID, to differing responses to the government's response to COVID. So I want to suggest that the reason that we don't have unity is the same reason that Paul doesn't have unity with his fellow Israelites who have rejected Christ. 
Why doesn't he have unified with them? Because they are not close to valuing in the center of their hearts the person of Christ and the gospel. Other things have taken place of that. In other words, our unity is not based on our response to the government's response, or our unity is not based on our response to the COVID virus. Can someone say amen? That is not what the church is called to be unified around. We are called to be unified around Christ and the work of Christ. So there are implications for unity in this passage. And in other passages. Let's look at another one briefly, another passage. You know this passage well. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, he doesn't tell us what he's referring to when he says whatever gain I had, but he might be referring to things like this. He might be referring to his Roman citizenship. He might be referring to the connectivity that he had in the upper echelons of Jewish society as a Pharisee to get his kids into the good schools, to get help, to get them a good tutor in Torah. Whatever gain I had that I've now lost, I'm not concerned with that, Paul is saying. It's actually a gain. Why is it a gain that he has lost these privileges and perks of being in the upper echelon society of of Judaism in the first century and of Pharisaical culture in the first century. Because the Torah has been pointing to the Messiah who's come and we're in a new covenant now. So whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he goes on. This is what's relevant to us especially, this sentence. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. There was a massive unity among Gentiles and Israelites in the first century in Rome in a mixed church, not because they ate the same food, not because they had the same color skin, not because they were from the same ethnicity, but because they were close to the person of Jesus and his work. That's what they were unified in. They didn't eat the same foods. In fact, Some of them wanted to leave the house when they saw the foods that these brothers are eating. What I'm saying, church, is that there is an orientation about what is important in Philippians 3. It's also in Romans 9.30 and following. And what is ultimately most important, that we should be have a special place in our hearts, at the center of our hearts, at the core of who we are, and that should be for Jesus Christ and the work of Christ. This is what unifies us. It is of surpassing worth. So here's the question. What is of surpassing worth in my heart? Functionally, yesterday, this week. What was of surpassing worth So I preach this sermon to myself, you know, I preach it to you, but I preach it to myself as I'm preaching this week. I I, I have a lot of things that, that are of worth and of value to me. 
And so as I'm going through this passage and praying over this sermon and praying over this text this week, what I'm praying is those things that I value that are good would just be at a very different place than the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not trying to change anybody's views on COVID right now. I'm trying to put that stuff in a category that is so far from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord that our church and all the other churches in Auburn and all the other churches in America begin to move in a direction of unity instead of disunity. So, this is a prayer. May the person and work of Christ be central in my heart exclusively. In other words, there is nothing else in the center there. Not my kids, not my wife. I love them. Care about them. Man, spend a lot of money on them. (laughs) This is out of the manuscript, but my son's texting me today. Hey, Dad, need to send more money to the school. I'm locked out of my account. (laughs) Anyway, I need some money after the service if anybody has has any. Where was I? All right, let's move on to, uh, to chapter 10. We've made it through 30 through 33. These are implications of exclusivity of the gospel, exclusivity or implications for unity. There is unity among Paul and the Gentiles because of their faith in Christ, the person and work of Christ. Let's look at verse 10, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Now, this is awesome. We can spend a whole other sermon on this, but I'll be, I'll be quick here. 10.1. Brothers, meaning brothers and sisters in Christ, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So this is similar to what I already quoted in 2 and 3. But here's the crazy thing. If you study Romans 9 and Romans 10, remember there were no chapter divisions when this was originally written. They're just kind of put in here to help us so we can find our way when uh, Tyler tells us to to open our Bibles. So this all flows together is what I'm trying to say. So for the person who has been studying Romans 9 carefully, there should be a little bell that goes off. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Well, he just finished. If we, if we turn back to chapter 9 and verse, let's say, uh, verse 18. Let's just go to verse 18 to get a, a summary. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So the person who's just studied this very difficult section of Romans 9 might be saying, uh, so God's ultimate, he has mercy on whom he wants, and he hardens whom he wants, and so just leave the Corvette in the garage. That's how some careful readers might respond to this. Do, Do I need to weep for those who don't know him? Do I actually need to be a witness? Yes! This is Paul who wrote Romans 9. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Does Paul believe that human beings are free? Say yes. Does does he believe in the efficacy of prayer? Yes. Does he believe in God's absolute sovereignty and divine election? Yes. They're all yes. But a right understanding of absolute sovereignty, of God's sovereignty and divine election, leads to Someone who prays for people to be saved and to make a choice to believe. That's the daily world 
that Paul lives in and that you and I live in. So one commentator helps us out here on verse 1. He says, We violate the order of human thought and trespass the boundary between God's prerogative, divine election, God's prerogative, and man's. When the truth of God's sovereign counsel, those verses back in earlier Romans 9, constrains despair or abandonment of concern for the eternal interests of men and of women and of boys and of girls that don't know Christ. In other words, if your understanding of Romans 9 and of divine election leads to you away from taking the Corvette out, spreading the gospel, being a witness to the gospel, you are not understanding divine election properly. It's a peek into the mind of God. It's not our prerogative. It's not our doing. This is our doing, to pray for a person by name, for a people by name, for them to be saved. This is what happens when a person is close to Christ or close to the gospel. Another commentator puts it this way. The unexpected turn in salvation history with many Gentiles and comparatively few Jews becoming saved, that's the major thing that's going on in this unit of Romans, can be explained from A, the standpoint of God's election, that's what we saw in verses 6 or 29 of chapter 9, or from the standpoint of human belief and unbelief. That's the world that we live in every day. That's where we find ourselves in 10.1. This is how we should live. 10.1 is how we should live. We understand divine election, but a misunderstanding of divine election empties us of tears, empties us of caring for family members and co-workers and classmates and neighbors who don't know Christ. It is the very reason you exist, broadly to glorify God. Secondly, to be his witness to the world around you is why we are here. It's why he hasn't come back yet. The scriptures tell us he hasn't come back yet, paraphrasing a bunch of verses here, is I ain't done collecting my folk. And it's our job to pray for them. And he responds to our prayers and by a supernatural work of grace brings them to him. That's why we're here. This is pretty far from COVID. What we are to be about and not complain about. And when I say that, I mean it should be down here. I'm not trying to change your views on it. So, let's move on. Back to the text. I need to finish up here. All right, verse 2. For I can testify about them that they are zealous, the, the Israelites who don't believe in the Messiah. They are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It's not genuine zeal. Like every verse of Scripture, we could just fly by here, but we need to think about ourselves. Is my zeal based on knowledge? Is my zeal based on the person and work of Christ? Or is my zeal on something else? Another way to, to preach this is to say, where is your zeal? If we had a recording of your life this last week, where is your zeal? What is zeal, you might be saying? An intense positive interest in something. 
marked by a sense of dedication to a cause or an objective. Where is my zeal? I have zeal. I have a positive interest in mountain biking. I'm dedicated to it. I do it a lot. See some of you out there. It's good. God, may my zeal for mountain biking be, be, be down here. And may my zeal for Christ and the work of Christ be up here. May my zeal, may my zeal be based on knowledge. They had zeal. And their zeal was actually for God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. But it wasn't according to knowledge. Where is your zeal? We are so good at misplacing our zeal. I became, when I became a Christian in 1987, lived in Texas at that time, and like many of us, you know, learned to be a legalist pretty quickly and to laugh at, at sayings, but to actually believe them. I don't know if you've, you've heard this one um, that I heard very early on as a teenager, as, as a 17, 18-year-old, uh, don't smoke, dance, or chew, or date girls that do. Have you heard that one? We laugh at that, right? But we kind of like live that out sometimes. That ain't the gospel. That, that, that ain't what we're supposed to be zealous for. Avoiding smoking and dancing and chewing tobacco. That's zeal, not according to knowledge. We kind of know that a little bit, so we have like little sayings to make fun of it. But we develop our own churchy legalisms. And we get zealous for them. That's zeal that's not according to knowledge. So, the second thing, and I'm just about done. May my primary zeal in life flow from the person and work of Christ. That's where my zeal needs to be. In a unique way. May my intense and positive interest in something marked by a sense of dedication be to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel and every other kind of zeal I have pale in comparison to that zeal. That is what we need to pray for. That's what God is calling us to. Let's finish up looking at verses 3 and 4, and then I'm just going to read part of the end of the passage. Verse 3, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own legalism, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't have righteousness. Again, this relates to the exclusivity of the gospel. The Israelites who know the Torah, who believe in God, who have zeal, do not have righteousness. They have their own self-righteousness. Then verse 4, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, black, white, male, female. Everyone who believes, Christ is the end of the law. Last thing I'm going to comment on is that phrase, end of the law, in verse 4. It has a dual meaning. In one sense, it means that the way that the people of God relate to the law has ended and has been replaced with the gospel. This was front and center in how we live out our faith. The commandments of Moses. 
that involve stoning, that involve diet, that involve all kinds of things. That has ended, not as Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, but as the main emphasis for life. So, it says, they did... Hmm. It's okay. It's okay. I usually just ignore that stuff, but I hear someone preaching the word. I might need to listen to, to that. I, I don't know if is, this, is God trying to say something to me here, and I need to be quiet. It's okay. So I'm just going to speak over it. Here we go. Christ is the end of the law. In the sense, we no longer relate to the laws of Moses than we do. And then secondly, Christ is the end of the law. End here also means goal. That the law pointed to Christ. So we don't dish the law. We don't say the law is worthless. It, it pointed to Jesus. If we had more time, we could look at Isaiah 53, 52. So many passages that pointed to him, including in the Torah, not just the prophets. He is the end of the law. The sermon is about praying that you and I and every believer would have a special, exclusive, central place in our hearts for Jesus and for the work of Christ, and that our zeal would flow from that. Let me close the message by reading just the last few verses, and I will not comment on them, but I'm just going to read verses 9 through the end of today's unit, verse 13. So, in fact, let's go ahead and stand as I read them, just as kind of our tradition here, and then I'll pray and close us. Let me read 9 through 13 again. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that each of us would be close to the person and work of Christ and that our primary place of zeal, our passion, would not come from lesser things, but it would flow from and to Christ and the gospel. And we would thereby find ourselves with, with compassion and tears for those that we know who don't know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, men in just a moment with the... Uh, baskets to collect your prayer cards. If you don't get a chance to fill one out before that time, you can fill one out and put it in the box in the foyer.